Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Catholic Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This channel and episode were created in collaboration with the American Catholic Historical Association, a conference of scholars, archivists, and teachers of Catholic studies. My name is Allison Isidore, and I'm a host. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Leah Mickens. She is the August Wilson Project Archivist at the University of Pittsburgh, and we'll be talking to her about her book, In the Shadow of Ebenezer, A Black Catholic Parish in the Age of Civil Rights and Vatican II. It was published by NYU Press last December. In the Shadow of Ebenezer, In the Shadow of Ebenezer examines how the civil rights movement and the Second Vatican Council affected African American Catholics in Atlanta, Georgia, by focusing on the historic Our Lady of Lords Catholic Church in the Old Fourth Ward. Our Lady of Lords is a neighbor of major historic Black Protestant churches in the city, including Ebenezer Baptist Church, a block away, which during the civil rights era was the pulpit for Martin Luther King Jr. Featuring archival and oral history sources, Mickens examines the religious and cultural life of parishioners of Our Lady of Lords Catholic Church. Focusing on this Black Catholic congregation and how it fit into the overall ecology of the neighborhood. By examining Our Lady of Lords in relation to the larger Protestant congregations, this helps us to illuminate whether and how they were shaped by their place at the center of the civil rights struggle, and how religious change and social change intersect. Leia, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, so before we dive into your book, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about yourself. I'm originally from Atlanta, Georgia, and I spent the majority of my life there. Academically, I have Bachelor of Arts in International Studies with Asia Concentration and a double major in History and Japanese. I have a Master's in Library and Information Science from the University of South Carolina, Columbia, a Master's of Science in Digital Media from the Georgia Institute of Technology, and finally a PhD in Religious Studies from Boston University. In the Shadow of Ebenezer started out as my PhD dissertation And I was called upon by New York University Press to turn it into a published book. And this is what we are here to discuss. Yeah. I mean, uh, like you just said, uh, this was a dissertation or this book evolved from your dissertation. Um, So how did you come about this project when you're in your program? Um, When I started my PhD studies, um, I originally went there with the intention of studying Catholic traditionalist, but I changed my mind from that because I feel like there's already a lot on that segment of Catholic studies. And I noticed in my research in general, not just for the dissertation, but obviously before that, that there's really not that much about Black Catholics in 
the United States. I was reading a book entitled The Spirit of Vatican II by Kathleen McDaniel, where she uses her own family history as a framing device to examine how Catholicism has evolved in the United States. She has what one could consider, I guess, the prototypical uh, white Catholic, white ethnic Catholic background. And so it's viewed through that lens. But as I was reading that, I found myself wondering, where are the Black people? I mean, if she's using her own background, I guess it makes sense that she would, that they wouldn't show up. But I, throughout my readings in general, I feel like there's a very heavy emphasis on white ethnic Catholics in the North and not on other groups. And so I hope that this research that I've done can spur on more conversations about what exactly is the average Catholic in the United States, and not just about Black Catholics as such, because I feel like there are lots of different types of Catholics in the United States that are not being examined um, by the academy or, or even in the popular press. And so I hope that this is a way to rectify that. I'm also coming out of my pre-existing interest in Catholic traditionalist, the Catholic traditionalist movement. It's a very Eurocentric movement, and it's based in a lot of assumptions about Vatican II and the relationship between liturgical renewal and the state of Catholicism and piety in the United States. Um, and I found that when I examined, that when I looked at those same assumptions, when looking at Our Lady of Lords, they didn't apply. Um, because one of the most, I guess, cornerstone beliefs in Catholic traditionalism is that uh, liturgical renewal led to a downward spiral in terms of parish health. And while that's been true in some cases, although it's not necessarily directly related to liturgical renewal, I found that when looking at Our Lady of Lourdes, the opposite was true, is that it, was, it wasn't until the parish embraced liturgical renewal that it really began to flourish although I would not want to discount it. It's pre-Vatican II history because that's very important as well. But I think that when examining the case of Our Lady of Lords, a lot of the assumptions that I think white Catholics make about the effects of Vatican II and liturgical renewal aren't true. And it's my hope that the examinations that I make about this subject can be examined further by other people, not just with regard to black Catholics, but with other groups of Catholics. That was such a interesting part of your book. This this focus on the the uh, African American Catholics in this congregation, which then leads me to your methodology. You're using a mixture of oral histories and archival documents to tell the story. And I was wondering what were some of the challenges you ran into when you were researching this book. Um, why did you take this? Uh, oral history and uh, archival approach? Because the pre-existing secondary literature on Black Catholics in the United States is quite sparse, I knew during the planning process that I would have to rely heavily on primary documents and oral histories. The archival documents were key to providing a timeline of Our Lady of Lourdes' history. I think this is the advantage of studying what is undoubtedly the most organized of organized religions is that Catholic archives are very well organized and documented. So if you want to go to an archive, if you're looking for something, all you really have to do is, is email the archive and say, do you have something on X? And they'll say, well, yes, we have something on X. I mean, it could be a bit challenging to figure out where it is because I had difficulty 
figuring out the chain of custody in some cases because um, the Archdiocese of Atlanta started out as part of the Diocese of Baltimore, I believe, and then it got gradually carved up until we got to the Archdiocese of Atlanta. So at first I wasn't really sure where things were, but fortunately due to um, Googling and inquiries, I was able to figure that out. Um, one of the most important sources that I was able to consult was the Annals of the Sisters of the Blessed Sacrament, who were assigned to Our Lady of Lords. And this, this, these documents were at the Catholic Historical Research Center in Philadelphia. I think this was probably the most useful in general uh, source that I was able to find because they recorded everything that happened to them from the moment they arrived in Atlanta in 1913 to when they left in 1974. And the things they described were not just what happened to them but also they remarked upon international and domestic events, things that happened in the city, things that were happening in the archdiocese or the diocese, depending on the time period. So in reading this, I could not only see how the parish itself grew and developed, but also how Catholicism in Atlanta did as well. Uh, for example, the annals mention the opening of the Monastery of the Holy Spirit, which is a, I think it's assertion, but don't take my word for it. It's a monastery in Conyers, Georgia, which was established sometime in the 40s. And so they described that going up. They discuss the establishment of what is now the, the Cathedral of Christ the King. Um, and they also discuss, as I mentioned, things that are happening in the outside world. Like they talk about seeing Archbishop Hallinan going to Vatican II and also the preparations they were making for the Cuban Missile Crisis in case nuclear war actually happened. They talked about converting the basement of the school into a fallout shelter. So it's a very interesting document about the parish and Catholicism in general. Then the documents that I obtained at the Office of Archives and Records at the Archdiocese of Atlanta were helpful in establishing what happened during the years after the Sisters of the Blessed Sacrament withdrew. Uh, the years after that were very lean, both in terms of membership and funds, uh, which means that the the bulletins that they had were very useful in establishing what was going on during the period when the sisters had left. And also there were many internal documents that were produced by the archdiocese that were very helpful in ascertaining what the hierarchy was saying about the parish itself, because for reasons I'll get into later, it became somewhat of a liability during this period, and they weren't sure if, whether it should stay open or, or if they should close it. Similarly, there were other documents that I found at the Auburn Avenue Research Library regarding Drexel Catholic High School, which was the Black Catholic high school that was established in the early 60s as a way to kind of sidestep the need for, deep, for Catholic school desegregation. It was very difficult to get materials on Drexel because I think that the Archdiocese doesn't want to think about it because it's a very, it's kind of a nadir in terms of relations between the Black community and the Catholic Church in Atlanta. Uh, so I don't think it's something they really want to think about. And it's not mentioned in most, I, I've never seen any references to it in any of the secondary literature on Catholicism in the South. But this one family donated all of their stuff related to Drexel High 
to the Auburn Avenue Research Library, and that was very helpful. They're actually mentioned in the book. Uh, these siblings, Marshall Thomas and Anita Watley, uh, they went to Our Lady of Lords and Drexel High, and they just donated all their stuff, and it was very helpful in ascertaining everything that happened with regard to the opening and the closing of that school. The Paul J. Hollinan uh, Vatican II collection at Catholic University helped me to understand how people at the time were viewing Vatican II as opposed to how people nowadays are viewing it, and also how Vatican II and liturgical renewal related to Atlanta in particular, not just liturgical renewal in the general sense. Um, the oral histories I used as a way to fill in the gaps in the primary sources, since the people who created the primary sources were white, and specifically they were either sisters or members of the hierarchy, they were viewing Our Lady of Lords from a rather different perspective as, I guess, kind of white, what we would call, I guess, allies or maybe fellow travelers, whereas I wanted to see how members who lived during the civil rights movement in Vatican II actually understood stood themselves as Black Catholics in this Protestant supermajority town. Well, it wasn't a town, it was a city. And I also chose to interview Black Protestants who belonged to the major churches on Auburn Avenue so I could see how they themselves viewed Catholicism and how they related to Our Lady of Lords. I also wanted to interview Black Protestants as a way to have kind of a counterbalance to, or a control group maybe is a better term, to see how their experiences were similar or different. Perhaps most importantly, I wanted to give the residents of Auburn Avenue, both Catholic and Protestant, a way to give voice to their own experiences as opposed to having outsiders, I guess, speak in their place. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the most interesting parts of the book. And um, you dedicate, you know, one of the chapters to looking at this uh, religious and political um, environment on Auburn Avenue, right? You're looking at focusing primarily on Our Lady of Lords, but like I said in the description, Right next door is Ebenezer Baptist Church. You have Big Bethel AME Church a couple blocks away. You also have uh, Wheat Street Baptist Church. So can you talk about that neighborhood and that impact that uh, the Our Lady of Lords was uh, experiencing or dealing with um, in its founding, what made this church different from, say, like the other tr Catholic churches in the area? I discussed it at some length in, I believe, the first chapter about the other pre-Vatican II Catholic churches in Atlanta. Uh, essentially, the the white uh, so-called pre-Vatican II churches differ from Our Lady of Lords in that they all were essentially offshoots of the first. Catholic Church in Atlanta, uh, the Church of the Immaculate Conception, which is now the Shrine of the Immaculate Conception. Uh, the Shrine, or I should say the Church of the Immaculate Conception, started as uh, a place of worship for Irish immigrants who had come to Atlanta to work on the railroads. Uh, gradually, the number of Catholics in Atlanta grew to the point where they needed another church, which is which would become the Sacred Heart Church, which is now the Basilica of the Sacred Heart, uh, which is on Peachtree Street, I believe. I would have to look it up. 
Uh, then once, then white Catholics who lived in the neighborhood called the West End got tired of, of having to commute to Immaculate Conception in the early 1900s. And so then they received permission to split off and form their own parish, St. Anthony of Padua. So essentially the history of Catholicism in Atlanta is can be traced back to Immaculate the Church of the Immaculate Conception and, and all of its offshoots. Our Lady of Lords is different in that it doesn't really, it doesn't have its beginning there, except maybe tangentially, because I've found records from the antebellum period, or rather it's in a spreadsheet at this point, because I think it's too delicate for researchers to look to handle physically. But it indicated that there were baptized slaves who were counted as members of Immaculate Conception. Many of these slaves didn't live anywhere remotely near Atlanta at the time. Uh, so, and this is because all Catholics in, I think, North Georgia were considered more or less to be in the terrestrial borders of Immaculate Conception. And so it's unclear if any of these slaves or even the slave owners were members there, but that was where they were theoretically supposed to attend mass. And they have just been baptized and never visited. And so as I talk about one of the co-founders of Our Lady of Lords, Father Ignatius Listener, arrived in Atlanta and he could only find like a handful of elderly Black Catholics who presumably decided to stay Catholic after the Civil War. Um, so there wasn't really much of a foundation there. Uh, so Listener decided to, well, he, was, he didn't decide. It was, he was invited in essentially, of course. So Our Lady of Lords was, it existed kind of in its own kind of pocket universe because it didn't really interact with the other Catholic churches because it was specifically a so-called colored mission. So it didn't reach church status for some time. It remained a mission. And as such, the because this was during the Jim Crow era, Our Lady of Lords was seen as kind of the object of charity and, I guess, pity and condescension. The other, if you look at pictures of St. Anthony's Immaculate Conception and Sacred Heart, pretty early on, they looked like what people would often think of as a Catholic church with very grand European-style architecture, stained windows, uh, schools, um, lots of amenities. This was especially true for Sacred Heart, where pre-Vatican II, it had a very large complex. There was a um, a military school for boys. There was a regular parish school. Um, at that time, it had an association with the Marist Fathers. Um, you can't tell that anymore now because they got rid of all that and put a parking lot there, but there used to be a huge complex of buildings in that area. And so, uh, Whereas Our Lady of Lords, until they built the permanent church building in the early 60s, it was just the school. Just kind of this square red brick building so it didn't have the the visuals that the other churches did um, until the separate church building was built they had mass in the basement um, and it was always running low on funds because the number of like the main place where the church got its converts was the school but a lot of the students were remained Protestant. So there was always this mismatch between that, whereas at the other churches, the everybody was Catholic at the schools. 
I don't think I think it would have been inconceivable in the pre-Vatican II period to have a parish school that had Protestants just because it was just too culturally different, especially in the South. Oh, I read about in the annals where the sisters would talk about how um, sisters and students from the other Catholic schools would come to Our Lady of Lords and basically come with charity. It would give them school supplies and money and things like that because it was viewed as a essentially what I guess would be called now an urban mission. So it was it had difficulty with money in a way that the other churches did not. Um, and even when the permanent church building was built, it was very simple in compared to the um, other Catholic parishes. It looked more more like the the small AME churches that one often sees in Atlanta. So it, visually it looked very different as well. But later on, all of the churches would suffer from white flight as many of the white Catholics who had lived in the city moved to the suburbs. But it was also very a problem for Our Lady of Lords, albeit for different reasons that I'll get into a bit later. But I think that I think that that the main difference between Our Lady of Lords and the other Catholic parishes in pre-Vatican to Atlanta was the fact that it kind of existed in its own world because of of Jim Crow. The students and the uh, families didn't interact with the white Catholics. They couldn't have other than the sisters and the priests. Um, and they didn't have the money to do a lot of the things that the other Catholic parishes had. But at the same time, it had its own culture that the other parishes didn't have because it was interacting with the surrounding neighborhood in a way that the white Catholic parishes didn't. Yeah, I mean, that makes complete sense when you consider the environment that Our Lady of Lords is based in um, and why it was founded to serve the African-American community within that area. And when it comes to the civil rights era and civil rights participation, you make a, a distinguish between the laity and the uh, Sisters of the Blessed Sacrament who were uh, assigned to the church, uh, assigned to the school, I mean. Um, what were those differences in their participation? What did they, what did they each contribute to the movement? From what I could tell, and I think this is an area that I think, where I think more research would be helpful. I think the laity of Our Lady of Lords was involved in the civil rights movement in the way that their Protestant neighbors would have been. Um, although I think the extent to which they participated depended on their age and station in life. Many graduates of the Our Lady of Lords School uh, went on to attend the schools in the Atlanta University Center complex, which is this cluster of historically Black colleges and universities. At that time, student activism was very uh, common on historically Black campuses. Um, and many uh, graduates of the Our Lady of Lords School were involved in what is called the Atlanta Student Movement, which was inspired by the student movement in Greensboro, South Carolina. I interviewed one man whom I previously mentioned, Marshall Thomas, who was involved with SNCC, and he described to me the ways in which he was involved with that organization in the 1960s. Older members were involved in a civil rights movement through uh groups such as unions, NAACP, and other pre-existing 
neighborhood groups, although some of them would have protested as well. And of course, there were many others who didn't protest, but they listened to speeches by those who were involved in more direct action and they gave money as well. Um, um, and a good example of this is how seven parishioners from St. Paul of the Cross, which was the Black parish that was established in Southwest Atlanta by splitting up Our Lady of Lords in 1958. Um, I found a letter from seven parishioners from this parish in which they sent um, this missive to, to Bishop Francis Highland in December 1961, stating that they were involved in civil rights protests, had no intention of stopping them, and that they wanted what they referred to as an interpretation of diocesan policy with regard to ethnic groups, which I think is a very passive aggressive way of saying that we're fed up with your lack of progress on Catholic school desegregation. So clearly Black Catholics were not, or at least the ones that I studied, were not just sitting around waiting for the bishop to give them to the say so for them to protest. They were just doing it and telling him about it later. Uh, so I don't think, I think that there wasn't a difference really in terms of, of participation because um, both Black Catholics and Protestants were affected by Jim Crow and they all had an interest in defeating it. I think that it's with the Sisters of the Blessed Sacrament, that was a different issue because as consecrated women, they they couldn't just go protest when they wanted to. They had vows of, of obedience, not just to the mother superior, but to the hierarchy. The, the Catholic Church in the South was very wary of appearing to be too friendly towards Blacks, which is one of the many problems that the Catholic Church in the United States has dealt with. So many uh, prelates in the South view themselves, themselves as being very law and order types, and they didn't want uh, women who were very clearly associated with the Catholic Church through their habits to be on TV and be shown associating with a group that was considered to be very politically suspect. The problem, though, is that by the 1960s, it was becoming more difficult for bishops to actually crack down on that because there were too many priests and sisters, not just from the South, but from other regions as well, who were involved in civil rights protests. And also because they were under a lot of stress and pressure from other groups to desegregate Catholic facilities, including uh, white interracialist Catholics, Black Catholics, the federal government, and the Vatican. So that's a lot of pressure. There was also also the fact that by the early 60s, it wasn't even sure what law and order really meant at the, anymore in terms of civil rights, because you have federal law, which is saying that you can't have Jim Crow anymore. But then at the local level, it's saying, yes, we're all in on Jim Crow. So the question is, who do you follow? And it wasn't entirely sure or clear, I should say, as to what that meant, especially as tensions flared and you saw members of the, who were in favor of the status quo who were engaging in violent action against civil rights protesters. Specifically with the Sisters of the Blessed Sacrament, Mother David, who was the Mother Superior of the Sisters of the Blessed Sacrament from 1964 to 1970, allowed the sisters to take part in nonviolent protests if they had the permission of their bishop. Um, I know that 
the Sisters of the Blessed Sacrament at Our Lady of Lords were involved in two protests that I'm aware of. In 1963, they took part in a rally headed by Martin Luther King Sr. at the Atlanta Federal Courthouse to protest police brutality against civil rights activists in Birmingham, Alabama. Then on March 16, 1965, the Sisters of the Blessed Sacrament, who were assigned to, to Drexel Catholic High School, were involved in a protest to demand federal protection for civil rights uh, activists in Selma. Then when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in 1968, the Sisters of the Blessed Sacrament from both Our Lady of Lords and Xavier University of New Orleans were involved in the funeral procession. This is particularly significant because if you actually look at the pictures of Martin Luther King's funeral, it's it's about 95% black. And I think even that might be too high. Uh, so the, the fact that the sisters were there, I think is very significant, both in terms of it, because it shows where their their loyalties lay in, in Atlanta. It was to the people that, that they served. Uh, based on what I've been able to ascertain, it seems like the sisters who lived in more urban areas were able to engage in more direct action simply because, of course, urban areas have more resources. There were, there were more um, networks and organizations that could engage in civil rights activities. Um, those in rural areas obviously didn't have as many resources. And given the, the level of hostility, both to Catholics and Blacks in general, sometimes just having a school that could um, allow Black children to go to college was in and of itself controversial. Uh, so I think that this is also something that needs more research. Yeah. And I mean, we'll get to this um, later on, but like uh, at the end of your book, you have like a, a, a whole section dedicated to what future research can be taken in this avenue or in this 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 area and the subject. Um, and so I, I mean, we should probably talk about Vatican II considering it's in the title. It's uh, it's a major event happening uh, at the same time as uh, the civil rights movement um, in the United States. You know, we're seeing these major changes from the liturgical um, to certain clothing. And so I was wondering if you could talk about how did um, the Vatican II changes impact the Black Catholics who were participating in the um, Atlanta in the civil rights movement. The impression that I get from the oral history that I collected is that they saw Vatican II as kind of a corollary to what was happening with the civil rights movement, where there was a feeling of change and hope in the air. Um, in terms of what that meant on a practical level, I don't think the Vatican II liturgical changes really manifested themselves fully until about 25 years after the fact. Um, during my research, I found out about how it more immediately impacted Black Catholic parishes in the North, like in Chicago, where they did some very political Black nationalist masses in the late 60s. Like they were really pushing the envelope in terms of what you could do and being very uh, politi politically radical about what they wanted and uh, what the Catholic Church wasn't doing with regard to Black people. I didn't see any of that happening in 
Our Lady of Lords or St. Paul of the Cross. From what I was able to tell from the um, the annals and what I ascertained from the oral histories is that things started to change, but people didn't, it doesn't seem like there was controversy. Uh, for example, scholar William Dinges, I think that's how it's pronounced, has put forth that arguments about liturgical change are really arguments about other things like race, for example, or electoral politics or these host of other things. And I think that because Our Lady of Lords was totally black at that point, there weren't those arguments because everybody was more or less coming from the same points of departure. Um, like I, I remember reading about when they changed uh, the mass to um, pro populo versus ad orientum, and it doesn't seem like that was a controversy. I read about when it changed from Latin to English. They seemed to like it. There was no controversy about that. There seems to have been a, a slight controversy about folk masses, but that was more of, of a generational thing. It wasn't It wasn't a huge deal. It was more like people just took the view of, well, I guess this is how the mass is supposed to be. I guess this is just how it's going to be. At the same time, though, I feel like there was some confusion during this period for Our Lady of Lords and that the music was different than how it had been, but it wasn't Black. It was just kind of... I guess, generically American, perhaps, uh, didn't really have, it wasn't really, uh, it was like, I guess, ambiguously Catholic, which I guess is why a lot of people don't like folk masses, but it wasn't really illustrative of the culture of Our Lady of Lords either. It was just, I guess they thought it is what it is. So there wasn't a huge amount of discussion about Vatican II and what it meant and what this means to us as Black Catholics at this point, although that does seem to have been the case in some northern parishes. The change, as far as I can tell, really happened in around 1990 when the choir director, when Our Lady of Lords hired a new choir director who started incorporating elements of gospel and jazz into the, congreg the congregation and the mass. And it seems that this, this is the point where the enculturation really started in earnest. By that time, the Bleed Me, Guide Me hymnal had been published that incorporated elements of Black culture into the Mass. But uh, Our Lady of Lords took it further than some of the other Black parishes in Atlanta. Uh, for example, it's it's not just that they use gospel music. It's like the arrangements are very professionally done. Like if you observe a Mass at Our Lady of Lords, there's elements of jazz and gospel and maybe even a bit of funk. It's very, it's very, I think, representative of the Black aesthetic as expressed through the Black arts movement that would have uh, touched Atlanta through the Atlanta University Center. And also by the uh, 70s, the Weston had become majority Black uh, due to white flight and also from uh, its proximity to the Atlanta University Center. Uh, which is why I find it curious that it took this long for for Our Lady of Lords to embrace enculturation because um, the same many of the same influences that one found in Chicago were in Atlanta. It just didn't manifest itself in that in that way. I think maybe that could be because of the strong Christian element in general that exists in Atlanta relative to Chicago. You know, I mean, Christianity is obviously quite strong there, but I feel that the dynamic of 
Chicago is very different than that of Atlanta, where there were a lot more non-Christian influences, I think, than in Atlanta. I think that Black nationalism was a much more powerful force in Chicago than in Atlanta. That is, that is to say, a secular Black nationalism. There's, one could say, a Christian Black nationalism that also exists, but that's beyond the, the, the reach of my research. And once the the parish embraced enculturation, it really reinvigorated the parish, which had always been in pretty bad financial shape, but it got especially worse in the 70s and 80s as urban blight took over Auburn Avenue. But once the mass itself was invigorated, it caused other people, uh, not just Black people, to want to become members of Our Lady of Lords. As a result of this, the non-Black membership of the parish is around, I think, 25% or so. Um, and a lot of the membership comes from outside of the city of Atlanta. This is this is actually true for a lot of the in-town Atlanta parishes to have membership that comes from elsewhere simply because of the changing demographics and the fact that I think a lot of people really like the architecture of the in-town parishes. But I think at the same time that Our Lady of Lords has has something that other parishes don't, which is its civil rights heritage, its, uh, its general ties to Black history, and also a mass experience that is very different than what one can find in other, other places. I think you do uh, a really good job of explaining or providing examples of that Black history uh, and Black community within the book. I think we have time for um, two more questions. Um, and so I'm going to jump back a little bit to, to something you mentioned earlier um, when talking about uh, uh, participation uh, in the civil rights movement, and that's um, discussions of uh, uh, desegregation um, in schools primarily. And so I was wondering uh, what the... Um, Archdiocese of Atlanta's uh, approach was to uh, desegregation. How did that uh, look um, compared to, say, other um, schools and uh, in the Atlanta area at the time? I think that the approach of what was then the Diocese of Atlanta to school desegregation was generally how it was with a lot of race issues then, is that it was better in a lot of ways, but still not great compared to secular or Protestant institutions. Um, there were already, uh, obviously the issue itself started with Brown v. Board of Education. Uh, and, and immediately after that ruling came down, it was decided that Georgia, like other Southern states, was going to engage in massive, what was it called? Massive resistance. Um, and Ernest Vandiver was elected as governor in 1959 with a promise that not a single Black child would attend a white school during his tenure, and his slogan of no, not one would become a rallying cry across the state. And in fact, it, they were so against school desegregation that they were prepared to close public schooling altogether, then desegregate. Um, so the situation with the public school was obviously very terse. And there was concern, a lot of concern about violence, which had happened, obviously, in Little Rock and other places where Black students attempted to desegregate public schools. 
there was a similar controversy, of course, in the Catholic schools, because Catholics had a very, they occupied a very tenuous position in, in Southern society. The, uh, since the antebellum period, the tendency was to just kind of do whatever would make Catholicism less threatening to white Protestants, which obviously led the Catholic Church to make a lot of very poor decisions that we're still having to deal with now. But specifically in this context, uh, Highland initially wanted to desegregate uh, the Catholic schools as early as 1958, which if that had been done would have uh, made it, the, not it would have predated the desegregation of Atlanta public schools by some years, but it also would have been the first Catholic diocese in the South to desegregate, period. Uh, the problem, though, was that the bishop's advisors had told Highland that desegregating even one school would bring public censure on the Catholic Church, which would lead to state action, fines, and the removal of teaching licenses and the possible closure of all parochial schools. So that was a problem. But at the same time, there was a lot of tension amongst Black Catholics about the failure of the diocese to desegregate schools which was hinted at in the letter that I mentioned earlier of the St. Paul, the cross parishioners to Highland. Highland himself was so stressed about the issue of school desegregation that he ended up having a nervous breakdown and eventually had to resign, which I think illustrates just how charged that issue is, is that he just couldn't figure out any way to make anyone happy. And it eventually affected him to the point where he just couldn't continue on in his position. So this is also another level in which the there's a conflict between what happens at the local diocesan level versus the national level because the the American hierarchy had had issued in that year of 1958 a pastoral level letter called discrimination in Christian consciousness that formally stated that Racism and segregation was a moral issue that American Catholics needed to be concerned about, which is obviously a huge break from the 19th century where slavery was considered to not be a moral issue. But by 1958, it was realized that racism was incompatible with Catholic social teaching and that school desegregation needed to be achieved throughout all Catholic institutions. Uh, but at the local level in the South, this was very difficult to accomplish. Uh, there was, as I mentioned, there was a very real fear about physical violence occurring during school desegregation. Um, and this was a major concern for the hierarchy and the sisters. In 1960, the Atlanta Board of Education would submit a desegregation plan to, to the federal government, but it was deemed to not be sufficient as it would simply desegregate a grade a year, which would obviously take over a decade to accomplish. Uh, the actual first point of desegregation happened in 1961 when Hamilton Holmes and Charlene Hunter uh, desegregated the University of Georgia. Um, and interestingly, Charlene Hunter was a member of St. Paul of the Cross, and she was, uh, she actually went back to St. Paul of the Cross to visit and to discuss her experiences with the sisters and the parishioners. So there's this connection that exists between 
Catholicism and school desegregation is not really picked up on. And she had actually been born into Big Bethel, but she decided that she wanted to be Catholic because she thought that she didn't approve of some of the practices at Big Bethel. And so she preferred uh, Catholicism at that time. Um, the public schools themselves in Atlanta weren't desegregated until August 30th, 1961 when nine black 12th graders were admitted to four white public high schools. And one of these students was a former Our Lady of Lords graduate who went there when her application to attend the segregated white high school, St. Pius X was rejected. Um, so after the public schools in Atlanta desegregated, the, the Catholic schools were finally desegregated as well, because I think Highland believed that once the public schools desegregated, that it would be safe for him to do so without experiencing a huge amount of backlash. To sort of smooth over the situation, he and two other Southern bishops, Thomas J. McDonough of Savannah and Bishop Paul J. Holland, who would later become Archbishop of Atlanta, uh, wrote a joint letter about the Catholic necessity of desegregation and uh, why this was necessary from both a social, religious, and political level. Um, when Hollenden became archbishop, he used a what is called a syllabus of racial justice that had been written in Charleston as a way to use Catholic social teaching to convince white Catholics to accept desegregation. Um, and Formal Catholic school desegregation came in September 4th, 1964, and there was no violence to it, which led uh, the sisters and the members of the hierarchy in Atlanta to perceive this to be a success. Um, the problem is that while there was no violence of the sort that one saw in Little Rock or in some other places, the desegregation process was still very difficult on a lot of black students. Um, and this is where the controversy over Drexel Catholic High comes in. Because there was no clear view as to when Catholic schools could be desegregated in a politically expedient way, it was decided to create a black Catholic high school on the St. Paul of the Cross campus called Drexel Catholic High, obviously named after Catherine Drexel. The, founder of the Sisters of the Blessed Sacrament. And it opened in 1962, which was the same year that Catholic school desegregation happened with the idea that they would add a grade a year. It was already a small school because obviously there weren't that many Black Catholics, uh, period. And so it was always a very small school. But the idea amongst the student body and the community was that, well, it's a new school, it's small, but, but we'll, we'll eventually grow it. So at first that wasn't really a concern, but the problem, the problem really started to occur is that Catholic schools in general were becoming insolvent. And it wasn't just an issue with black schools, it was with Catholic schools in general, because the it seems that vocations in general were artificially high after World War II for reasons that are still not entirely understood. And it's believed that after Vatican II, they leveled off to a more um, historically, I guess, accurate 
level. Um, but the problem with the parish school model is that it just assumed that you would always have then create locations would just keep growing into the future at a rate that is in retrospect, not really sustainable. So there was the vocations issue and also the white flight issue as many white Catholics were leaving um, the city of Atlanta for the suburbs. And so that meant that there were too many schools and not enough students to fill them. Um, specifically in the case of Drexel, the problem was that the is that uh, white Catholics were not willing to go to Drexel because it was viewed as, quote, a colored school. Um, and therefore, because there was a, an understanding of that, the school itself had to be closed, which led to a great deal of consternation amongst the Drexel uh, community, because from their perspective, Drexel was a school, was a good school with promise, and it was only being closed because whites were not willing to uh, put their children in a school with with black students. And I think this is a problem that still to a large extent hasn't been resolved yet because the feeling with regard to Drexel was that black, black students were being made to, to endure a great amount of difficulty to get to white Catholic schools because when Drexel closed, a lot of them ended up going to St. Joseph's, which was a Catholic high school in downtown Atlanta and to St. Pius, which was out in the suburbs and was very difficult for them to access. And so from their perspective, they were being told to make all these sacrifices to go to, to engage in what was viewed as essentially token desegregation, and to put up with lots of racism, microaggressions, just general inconvenience, uh, while just to make white Catholics feel comfortable, um, whereas they were being told that they basically had to be as uncomfortable as possible for seemingly no reason. Because if white Catholics in the southern part of Atlanta had in fact been required to send their children to Drexel, which would have been in the ability of the Archbishop to do, then uh, Drexel would have been, I think, as large as it would have needed to be to be to continue on as a school. But because the Archbishop wasn't willing to do that and because white Catholics weren't willing to desegregate, then the school has had to close. Um, and even though the student body and their parents were willing to go on a drive to bring in more Blacks into the school, um, Archbishop Holland then basically said, no, we're just going to close it. And that led to a lot of very bitter feelings. And I think this whole episode illustrates one of the problems with how desegregation was carried out in general, not just in the Catholic Church, but, but the idea that of course, Blacks would want to go to, to white institutions that are automatically perceived as superior. Um, but there's no, there's no give or take in that. There's no sense that white should also have to desegregate as well. It's all, the onus is all on the Black community to have to put up with um, having to inconvenience themselves to either access the resources they they need or to desegregate a facility for whatever reason. And I think this is something that has not been fully resolved in, in our society because um, I think that a lot of Black people assumed that desegregation would be a two-way street in the 60s, that they didn't think that their own facilities would close. They just thought that white people would go to them as well. Um, what actually happened were Black institutions were universally closed and they, then they just had to 
either not have those facilities at all or they had to inconvenience themselves to go to wide institutions was not what they had in mind. And I think that's an issue that we're still having to grapple with. So from the perspective of, I think a lot of white Catholics, they consider desegregation to be a success because there were no brawls or bombings or any of the other types of violence that one saw in other places. But from the black perspective, it's more like they were being told that your institutions are worthless. You just need to um, inconvenience yourself for, for, our, for our own convenience. So uh, my last question, I, I, I hinted on it a, a little bit earlier, but in your conclusion, you have a, a section dedicated to um, future research or um, potential research that should be taken. Uh, and so I was wondering, you know, what projects are you currently working on? Are there any lingering questions that remain uh, from your work on In the Shadow of Ebenezer that you plan on pursuing, uh, or has your work taken a new direction? Um, it's my intention to write an article about the Catholic Color Clinic, which was another endeavor that was associated with Our Lady of Lords in the Jim Crow pre-Vatican II era. Uh, the Catholic Colored Clinic was, I'm not entirely sure of the exact location, but it was in the same cluster as Our Lady of Lords. And it was viewed as being part of the Our Lady of Lords mission. Um, this was staffed by the Medical Mission Sisters, not the Sisters of the Blessed Sacrament. And it provided healthcare to the people in the Auburn Avenue area. Uh, this was considered controversial because Although it served a Black population, it didn't have any Black doctors. Um, and this was a source of contention with the wider Black community to the point where one of the sisters asked one of the priests who was associated with the mission, well, what do we do about the fact that the Black doctors can't work here? And the reply she got was, um, it was basically that we're at the behest of our white patrons and that they don't want Black doctors and that's their, that's their right to do so. And the Black people should be frankly thankful that we're doing this at all. And our job is not to provide jobs for Blacks. Eventually, um, the Catholic Color Clinic would, would expand and would become Holy Family Hospital, which was also on the St. Paul de Cross campus. Um, but eventually, like many um, religious orders, the, the medical mission sisters had, I guess, a crisis of um, not really consciousness, but like more like their they weren't entirely sure what their carom was um, and and are they doing what they should be doing? Are we, should we be here? Should we, like, what what is our, our mission in a post-Vatican II world? And eventually it became a secular community hospital, Southwest Hospital, uh, and it eventually closed in, I don't remember the exact year, but um, I think that was the result of the fact that a lot of Unfortunately, many hospitals that serve minority populations are being closed. Um, although there is a park in that area now to commemorate the doctors, nurses, and sisters who serve the community. So people remember it. It's just a very unfortunate story of how a lot of services for poor and minority communities are not supported as they should. And I'd like to um, do some research on that subject. Um, an idea that I've been floating around is maybe to do a short article about Paul J. Hollinan and his, the limericks he wrote, he wrote during Vatican II, because one of the more interesting things I found in his collection was 
some limericks that he wrote when he was um sitting in the sessions at Vatican II. Um, some of them are in English, but some of them are actually in Latin too, which is which is amusing. Um, a lot of them are it's very church nerd stuff. Like you're not really going to get them unless you're really deep into Vatican II and theology. Um, there was one that was I think is particularly amusing where he talks about a group of radicals at Vatican II and how people aren't really so sure about them, what they're saying. And among them, he mentions Rat, um, Ratzinger and, and Kung, and we all know how that turned out with them. So in retrospect, it's, it's quite interesting, although I'm not quite sure like what the thesis would be for that, but I think it's something that's worth adding to the scholarly record. Yeah, and that that all sounds fascinating, and uh, I would definitely be interested in reading anything else you had to publish on, you know, Vatican II, Black Catholics, and, you know, like, the Civil Rights Movement. And so, Leia, thank, thank you for uh, being on the podcast today. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me. This has been New Books in Catholic Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.